our sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So it was hot. I mean, we're talking like Houston hot. Like as hot as it is outside, but like mid-August, another 20 degrees up and boiling. And there was Abraham standing at the tent flap, looking out over the horizon. Now, it's hard to wrap your heads around it, but Abraham didn't have air conditioning. And so I could understand why he pitched his tent next to a huge oak tree, because it gave nice shade. I also understand why he had the flaps of his tent open so you could get as much cross breeze coming through. And as he was resting there, hiding out from the sun, he looked out and he saw three people walking towards him. His first thought was probably, why on earth are they out in the middle of the day in this kind of hot sun? Makes sense. But his second thought was for their welfare. According to the text, he ran to meet them. He bowed down before them And he asked them if they would be willing to come to his tent uh, and receive a bit of refreshment, receive a morsel of food, a bit of water, wash their feet, lie down in the shade. Now, in the ancient world, as it's often been said, uh, the virtue of hospitality was particularly significant. And this is certainly true for Bedouin people. You can see it today because hospitality in a situation like this could be a question of life and death. I mean, if you're out in the middle of a Houston summer in the middle of August, traipsing your way across a long distance, you could be suffering from heat stroke. The difference between literally life and death could be the chance to rest and get some water, rest in the shade. Hospitality made a big difference to ancient people. But when I look at this text, I see something a little bit else going on here. Because you know what? I think Abraham loves what he's doing. I mean, after all, the text says again and again that he's hurrying around, hastening around, getting things ready. He offers them a morsel of food and a little taste of water, but what does he give them? What does he give them? He gives them the best flour that's available, the best calf that's available. I mean, he takes out his fine china, his nice crystal, uh, lays out everything as nicely as he can, all for these guests. He loves being a host. I have to confess, I love being a host too. I like throwing things. I like having people over. Informally, I like dinner parties. I like cocktail parties. I like hosting people. I like the joy that that brings. I like bringing people into my home. There's something special about that that's not replicated when you do that in a restaurant. And I love it. I was thinking this past week about uh, when that started. And I remember when I was a little kid, uh, my parents used to have dinner parties all the time. And I would sneak around the corner and peer and see them, all these uh, old adults at the table, doing their thing. Now, of course, for me then, I was like, all these old adults, but my parents were probably about my age now when they were having those (laughs) dinner parties. But it really was when I spent, when I went to Eden College after, uh, after my undergraduate degree, I went to Eden College to teach. And that's where this love of hospitality came from. Because when I was there, I was living in a house with other single teachers, all of us living together. It's one of the things they do. All the single teachers had a house together, and we had our own maid and our own cook. We were very much struggling, I know. (laughs) It's a tough life. 
We had our own maid and our own cook, and we had people over constantly. So people came over for lunch, for dinner. Uh, we had several garden parties outside. Uh, the Cloniarch, the head of the colony, uh, the Cloniarch, Simon Dean, is one of the finest cooks I've ever met in my life. Simon Dean would put on like eight course meals for people. I remember at one point we were going to the kitchen, seeing this torrent of activity as he threw another, bottle, another box of eggs in the trash. He was like, I've used 56 eggs in this meal for eight people. Think about that. 56 eggs and for, eight people, for an eight-person dinner party. And there was, none of the main dishes were eggs. <laughs> Uh, so again, there's this incredible hosting. When I got back to Boston uh, from my year at Eaton, I, for the first time in my life, I had some dinner parties, and I loved it. And then when I was at Yale Divinity School, this is a, <laughs> this is a confession from your minister. When I was at Yale Divinity School, my, my one leadership position was as the president of the Night Walking Society, which was the fun police at Yale Divinity School. So I know what you're thinking. Think of how much fun Divinity School is. What does it mean to be in the fun police? Uh, we hosted events, uh, came up with uh, neat things to do, uh, neat activities, things that brought people together. That was something that I enjoyed enough to step forward and say, yeah, I'll do that. I loved it. They say today that there's a decline in hosting and hospitality. That there are fewer dinner parties, cocktail parties, block parties than there used to be. When I grew up uh, in the 80s, we used to always have literally block parties on our block. We would uh, get permission from the police to block off the road, and the entire neighborhood was invited, and it was just a big casual gathering on the block. My neighborhood today, I don't think, has block parties anymore. You can see this decline, actually, in the design of homes as well. My parents' home was built in the 1950s. And when you walked in, again, you had stairs right ahead of you, you had a den off to your left, and off to the right was a large living room, formally sort of laid out. And then on the other side of that, or right adjacent to that, was a dining room, and then a swinging door into a narrow kitchen. My mother called it a bowling alley kitchen. And the entire focus of the house was that the biggest room in the house was that living room. It was meant for entertaining. It was meant for cocktail parties and dinner parties. That's how the house was laid out. When my parents had their first renovation to the house, what did they do? They expanded the kitchen and they added a family room. You look at houses today when they're designed, the focus of the house is in the kitchen family room area because that's where the home life has shifted to, away from entertaining. Do you host parties at your house? Dinner parties and formal gatherings? Do you do it as often as your parents did? They, I was reading an article in the uh, New York Times not that long ago talking about this decline in parties, even, even with the millennial generation. Uh, so here are people in their 20s having fewer gatherings at their house than statistically than they used to have 20, 30 years ago. Part of it's because people are flaky with Facebook uh, <laughs> replies, apparently, so you never know who's coming. Part of it's that there are expectations of really fancy parties, apparently, that people want to put on. But more than anything else, people are just plain busy. You know how it is. I mean, look at Abraham with all his hurrying around, all the preparation it requires, the cleanup, the cost. There's a real decline in hospitality. Does it have an effect? What about in church? What about in this church? This church, one thing I will say about this congregation is that this congregation is a pretty social congregation. There are more social events in this church than any other church I've been in. But are there the same numbers there used to be? 
of the same type? What about our hospitality on Sunday morning? One aspect about a congregational church is that the congregational church is owned by all the members. This is, this is all your space. This is your space. This is your home, your spiritual home. Not, it's, there's, no, there's no institution that controls us or oversees us. You are the institution. So when people come here on Sunday morning, you are the host to anyone who walks over that threshold. Do you think you're a good host? Are you good about saying hello to someone who comes, comes in, welcoming them, inviting them to things? I want you to close your eyes for a moment and imagine what would it look like if you were the best host you could be here on Sunday morning? What are some concrete things that might be different? There's an intriguing shift in our text this morning. It happens at verse 9. It's such a remarkable shift that scholars wonder whether or not there were two texts that were later, two stories that were later melded together to form the passage that we have for this morning. In verse 9, one of the guests asks Abraham, who was standing there, not sitting with them, asks Abraham where Sarah is. At this point, you can, you can tell Abraham's a little curious, well, how do you know my wife's name is Sarah? And he's like, well, she's in the tent. Uh, and then the, this one guest comes back and offers him a blessing, saying that Sarah will bear a son. And then in verse 13, we find out that this guest is, in fact, uh, the Lord, God, Yahweh. Abraham, without even realizing it, was entertaining God herself. Think about that. What would that be like? When I lived in Iowa, my favorite place in Iowa was 309 Hickory Drive. It's a house that was tucked in the woods. Now, again, if you've been to central Iowa, you know that there aren't many woods in central Iowa. It was tucked in the woods, and you went down a long driveway to get there, and it was right on the hillside, also not many hills in central Iowa. There was, it was on a hill, and it was this contemporary design, and you walked over this uh, wooden walkway, and as you entered the house, there was this nice big living room with these 25-foot-high glass windows uh, all around that looked out into the woods. A stunning place. It was owned by uh, my closest friend in Iowa, a guy named Matthew Ellenwood, who's a professor at Iowa State University. Uh, and I rented out his basement, his downstairs, for the last year and a half that I was in Iowa. One thing I will say about Matthew is he was the finest host of anyone I've ever known. And what I mean by that is his door was always open, and people would walk through it. I mean, you'd be sitting there, I'd be sitting there doing work, and someone would just knock on the door randomly. I mean, it could be a friend, a colleague, a student, a former student. There was just, Matthew cultivated this attitude of my door is always open. And as a result of that, there were these incredible conversations that happened, these incredible mentoring opportunities that happened. Matthew's also the best person at whipping together food of anyone I've ever known. Like you could give, I mean, I, I'm sure there's some reality TV show about this, and if there is, he would win it, where you're just given a random bit of goods and being like, all right, make something. And Matthew could make something better than anyone else from that. I remember at one point we were sitting there, 
This is before I moved in with him. And we were sitting there, informal gathering, chatting. Um, and one of, the things that, one of the things that came out of the conversation is that in Ames, Iowa, let's see where we lived, uh, there was no gay bar in Ames, Iowa. It had burned down and nothing had replaced it. So there was no social space uh, for people. And so people just met one another uh, uh, through online applications. There was no face-to-face interaction. And we were like, this is, a, this is a travesty. You know, people should actually get to know one another. So we decided to host monthly dinner parties. Uh, open invitation. I mean, open invitation. Literally, anyone could show up. Um, and so once a month, again, this is an almost, almost entirely gay male event, but once a month, we'd open up the house, and people would show up. It started off as like 10 people, but within a few months, it got to be 50, 60 people. Matthew would cook dinner for 60 people. It's pretty remarkable. And people would drive from, like, some people were driving from 40 miles away to come for this dinner. And it was just a wonderful atmosphere that was there. I remember talking to one guy who said, I just had a 40-minute conversation with someone who the other day online wouldn't even say hi back to me. It wasn't about a relationship thing. It it wasn't about anything romantic. It was about something, just having real connection with other people. There was a couple there that actually met that ended up getting married. Uh, we, we were very good friends with some of the public health people in the state. And they actually came and they asked if they could do STD testing there, which they did, confidential STD testing for people who, who wanted it, trying to promote public health. One student uh, who had been sort of rejected by his parents, uh, he uh, tried to commit suicide at one point and found himself in a psych ward. Uh, and it was that community, the community of professors, leaders in town uh, that all knew one another that became his surrogate family to help him get back on his feet. It's amazing what blessings can come out of hospitality. Now, when I was in college, I was in a fraternity social club, and I remember my junior year in the middle of our rush season, we were all pretty run down and exhausted. And we had this meeting with the members together, again, a small group, meeting with the members. And this one senior got up, and he turned to us, and he said, this is worth putting effort into. Because 30 years from now, you'll come back to this place, and the person sitting across the table from you will be someone that you helped invite into the club this fall. It's worth putting in that extra effort. Because this is for the long haul. So I put it to you, what can you do here at First Congregational to be a bit more welcoming? It could be something small. It could be an extra handshake, an extra hello, an invitation, a follow-up email, wearing your name tag, filling out your red pew pads and then seeing who's there and saying hello again, asking someone to remind you of their names, even even though that can be awkward. These small things can help create an atmosphere of hospitable welcome in this place. And it's worth investing in because this is a small congregation. It's a congregation where people get to know one another. That's one of its great strengths. There are people that you could welcome on a casual Sunday. And because of your welcome, that person might be there there with you for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, or longer. Someone that you might be serving at a soup kitchen with. Someone you might be uh, helping set up for a funeral reception for, serving on a board together with. Someone who, when you're grieving, might be coming by your house to bring you something to eat, all because you initially extended a word of welcome 
here this morning. Small gestures can make a huge amount of difference. Sometimes it can seem uh, so absurd that it could even make you laugh, but it's true. The reality is an extended welcome that you give on Sunday morning can help transform this congregation, and without even realizing it, you might be entertaining 